This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to the Insiders Back to You podcast. I'm David Spears, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I'm joined this week by the ABC's political editor, Andrew Proben, and ABC Radio Sydney breakfast presenter, James Valentine. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thank you. Thanks, David. Hello, James. Happy Budget Week. Happy Budget Week. Um, Although there wasn't much to be happy about, really, in this budget, particularly on energy prices. Uh, We'll get to all of that. We'll um, get to all the questions, and unsurprisingly, a lot of them are focused on energy in particular. Let me just get a quick two-minute take, um, or thereabouts, before we dive into those questions from you both on the budget. Andrew, a few days on, how do you think the budget's holding up? How's it looking? Well, it's quite clear now that um, the the government's time has started. In in essence, you know, for the past few months, we've been uh, we've been experiencing a, a new Labor government that's talked a lot about the problems, about um, the what the coalition did and more importantly, didn't do as far as the Labor Party is. But from here on, it's down to what Labor does. And so the focus um, from uh, Tuesday has been about power prices, the tough decisions that weren't made, uh, despite the fact that we were told that some would be made. And that's where the focus of the political debate will be from for months until at least until the next budget and uh, and the budgets after that because as we'll hear no doubt in this podcast there's a lot of big decisions to make well there are um james what grabbed your attention this week in the budget i think well i think perhaps even rather than what grabbed my attention let's just sort of have a little think of from the listener's point of view and the caller's point of view was like Oh, um, sorry, are prices still going up? Is the power still going to be expensive? Can I not afford to fill the car? Uh, mortgage is still up? Oh, can I not rent anywhere? Okay, what budget? Like, it, it just didn't mm. seem to... It wasn't grabbing anybody because it, it... I don't know, maybe there wasn't that sort of big ticket spend on something that made everybody feel like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Or there wasn't the, you're going to get a $250 reduction in this or that. I think the general economic pressure is so overwhelming on so many people and it affects everybody so directly that it didn't have much impact at all. Yeah, and, and this is the thing. Um, because this wasn't a budget that really had too many solutions to those uh, cost of living problems, in particular energy, uh, I think it has you know left a lot of people scratching their heads wondering, you know, what, what are they going to do and when are they going to do it to, to bring down some of these prices? Let's get to the questions because they do go primarily to this problem. Robert asks, why do Australian power suppliers charge international prices for something that comes out of the ground? Why do we not compulsory retain first what we need at cost and then sell the rest? Well, Robert, it's a good question. Uh, I do think it's increasingly difficult to comprehend how um, a resource-rich energy exporting superpower like Australia really has such unaffordable power prices and is completely hostage now, we can see, to this international gas price. Um, Andrew, Robert's really asking here, I guess, about the idea of reserving this gas reservation idea. It's been kicked around for a long time. It's been in place in WA for uh, for quite a while, but not on the East Coast. No, it's not. And this is fundamentally the um, the crisis that we've got here in terms of policy. Um, now, we have a nation that has two different um, energy uh, stories 
in WA, gas is something like $6 a gigajoule. So remember, that's about 6 6 to 7 gigajoule. Uh, in the East Coast, it's, it can be anywhere from 12 up to 29 dollars a gigajoule and that has a big effect on um, the cost of electricity now for those of you who who watched uh, 7 30 this week you would have seen mark mark mcgowan the premier um he was rather smug i thought <laughs> he was talking about uh, the power price is only going up by you know one one and a half percent um th- this last year uh, gas being cheap and f- and he was saying fundamentally there's two things wrong with the system. One is that much of Australia has privatised its its energy companies and secondly, he's got a gas reservation policy. In WA, 15% of all gas has to be used domestically and that, that keeps that price low. Uh, obviously what Western Australia has shown, reliable electricity, affordable gas, reliable supply, um, none of the sort of uh, chaos you're seeing in the eastern states. But it's more than that. It's also the fact we didn't sell off the assets like New South Wales has. So we have a sort of a much more uh, steadier, more um, reliable system. Queensland was invited to, to do so, um, decided not to do it. Um, why why prices so high? Well, there's a huge demand globally um, and we've got companies that are making an absolute mozza selling selling gas offshore. Well, the, the question a lot of people ask is, why is it too late? Has the horse already bolted? Why can't we say to the gas companies, from now, you've got to pump more of it into the domestic market? Well, it, it, uh, some people would say it is too late because these are the decisions you had to make at the start. And I think if you're going to have a reservation policy, it would be safer in a sort of sovereign risk sense to do it prospectively, not... Uh, With a new gas field, not not the um, existing... Ex- exactly. Yeah. Uh, but new gas fields, there's there's problems too. I mean, if we don't have any... Well, there is the Narrabri gas uh, project, but th- this is difficult for Labor because you know, opening that up, opening up any new gas field, they're under a fair bit of pressure uh, from their left flank, including the Greens, to say no to any new gas fields at all. Um, nonetheless, this this is a problem, James, isn't it, where a lot of Australians are asking, increasingly so, why do we have to pay the international price that's soaring for our gas? Yeah, I think, as you say, people, people are asking that question, David, but I think also Australians understand that it's Look, we've only been a resource superpower, as you described it, for about 170 years. And that's a short <laughs> period of time to try to get all these parameters right as the various minerals and, and, and resources have flowed through our hands out to out to the rest of the world. I mean, I understand this because I'm a Ballarat boy. So, you know, I grew, I grew up with, with a dispute about mining taxes as part of my birthright. Um, you know, we, we knew that they got the whole gold <laughs> thing wrong, you know, in 1854 and hence we got the Eureka Stockade and... Uh, I don't think we've managed to sort of figure out how to sort of appropriately no. tax or reserve our own resources ever since, really. Like, we, we, we get to this all the time. We've either, there's a super profit going on and we're not taxing that, or there's something that we need and we've just let it all go, or we don't value add to whatever it is we've got. So, you know, I think expecting us to get these sort of parameters right in just it's a, a couple hard. of centuries, it's, it's a big it's, ask. It is, it is. There are a lot of factors weighing on the government, we should point out here, in in any decision to, you know, suddenly tell the gas companies, okay, you've got to redirect here. One of them is um, our international friends and allies. Japan's Prime Minister was only here, he was in Perth, uh, he came all the way there to meet Anthony Albanese only a week ago. I mean, yes, it was to discuss a number of things, but Andrew, it's pretty clear one of them was 
please make sure our gas supplies are, are protected uh, amidst this global crisis. You would suspect that's one of the messages he delivered to Anthony Albanese. Oh, absolutely. And uh, Japan's been critical to the development of offshore uh, oil and gas projects uh, in Australia, especially those off WA. So he was he came to Australia to in- to ensure that there was going to be no no contamination of their own supply because of the domestic dispute that we're having. Um, obviously, he was given those assurances because this is this is big money not just for uh, the companies that have made uh, massive investments but also it's it's uh, it's generating quids and well many many quids i should say of uh, for the australian budget i mean it's swimming in money resources is is generating absolutely packets and that's that's the other story about tuesday yeah um you had uh the budget doing pretty well thank you very much because of the war in ukraine and yet we've got australians themselves who are really really being hit hard didn't rod sims lay all this out this week where he's you know former head of the ACCC is saying you know like as you're saying you've got resources in place already so as new ones come online perhaps think about them differently but also we only need to price the excess gas, mm. excess to our contracts with Japan or anywhere else in the world at something at less than ten dollars a gigajoule, and then we're okay. Then, then that will that will influence the 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 national market, and the government has the lever to pull that this afternoon. Mm. Well, I guess, and, and this kind of takes us to the next question from Greg, who's asking uh, for for us to take a, a dive into the the rules and regulations and pricing structure of Australia's natural natural. Um, resources and, and why they can't regulate domestic prices. It kind of goes to this. Um, Rod Sims' point there is not a bad one. I guess it depends how much excess gas there really is uh, available. You know, Andrew, is it clear there is a hell of a lot of it swimming around that you could suddenly direct into the, the domestic market uh, or not? Look, there's, there's a lot of gas that could be extracted a and b there there is sufficient for domestic markets but i think that we've also got a, a concern inside the industry about uh, the rush to renewables now of course that is the future renewables is going to be the future hydrogen hopefully is going to be the um, the future but at, this, at the same time we only have uh, gas a- available for maybe 10% of our energy needs so when renewables do fall down and that's that does happen when there's no sun and there's no wind uh, gas can only fill part of that uh, uh, part of that uh, that need and so perhaps the the future will look like um, it's called a capacity model where you basically pay to have access to gas access to coal as well as renewables uh, that is something that the Energy Security Board has recommended, but if it's something that the Greens in particular don't like because it's seen as a, a subsidising fossil fuel. But the fact is we still new, need fossil fuels, be be that coal or, or gas, and we're going to need them for, for, for perhaps a couple more decades. For a while yet. Well, yeah. Joff asks, I mean, you talk, Andrew, about the commodity price boom helping the government's bottom line, the money that's flowing into government coffers because of all of this. But is it enough? Joff asked the question a lot of people are asking, why doesn't the government, uh, A, impose or lift taxes on anyone mining fossil fuels in Australia, B, impose export taxes on a per unit basis, uh, and C, use the proceeds to accelerate Australia's 
transition to sustainable, renewable um, energy. Uh, look, let's just tackle part A of that, a tax or a, or a higher tax on these fossil fuel exports. There are state royalties that are charged on fossil fuel extraction. There's the federal PRRT, which is the Petroleum Resource Rent Tax. I had a look in the budget papers. It is only raising $2.6 billion this financial year, and that's not it's barely uh, barely increased since uh, it's increased by about 200 million since last financial year um which isn't much given the boom that we're in and then they pay company tax like every other company um Andrew, is it enough? He's absolutely not. The PRRT has been a, a, a disgrace. Uh, this has been a, a tax that's been um, with us since the 1980s, and even you know, even now with these massive profits being made by um, these oil and gas companies, the fact that we get such a piddling level of PRRT is an embarrassment, and you, the PRRT has been around one and a half to two billion dollars for the past 15 years or so it doesn't really go up a great deal and it, it it is not capturing the great wealth that we have in resources now the other aspect of this taxation is that um, we have designed as a nation a, a taxation system that allows companies to come in and build enormously admittedly enormously expensive uh, infrastructure projects like the Gorgon project, which is off the coast of WA. It's about $50 billion. And uh, they're allowed to basically write off the total cost of that against their tax liability. So even though these companies do pay a lot of company tax um, in terms of the, the tax on the actual resource that they're, um, that they're using and, and, you know, exporting, we, we don't get much of a return. So the tax regime is, has been wholly inadequate, I think. Yeah, they're, they're review, they've been reviewing that PRRT, or they had been, and now they're going to keep reviewing it, the Treasurer's indicated. Bottom line, I think Labor's a little gun-shy here, and we saw this during the Stage 3 tax debate that lasted for all of a week um, before the budget. They're really worried about new taxes, increased taxes. But James... Do you think that appetites are shifting, that people want to see more revenue, particularly from those rather profitable gas companies? Well, I was a little struck when you, David, when you said, you know, and they pay company tax like any other big company in Australia. Well, that then would be not much at all, as Andrew <laughs> just, you know, outlined. And I think there's a huge appetite to 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 rein in some of that, whether it's in mining or communication or whatever it might be. If you work here, could you pay your taxes here? If you're making profit here, could you pay pay your taxes here? I mean, these, mm. are, these are fairly simple things that people want. Isn't this akin to the power that these kind of industries have, the influence that they have, you know, and again, whether it's whether it's fossil fuel or you look at things like the, you know, the gambling and the liquor industries in New South Wales, they have such power over government that government is somewhat powerless to put in the kind of things that they would like to see. Does this go back to the sort of the attempt during the Rudd government to, to bring in a, a, a profit tax and to try and have a tax level when you got to this level? You know, you'll pay more tax, which again came back to sort of, well, why aren't they just paying tax anyway? Good Lord. <laughs> um, so it seems very difficult to get any of this this thing done. And the, you know, somewhat cynical bystander may suggest that this has got something to do with the influence these companies have. And David, let's, let's remember what's happened in Britain. We've had uh, Rishi Sunak, who is now uh, the British Prime Minister, but when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, just back in June, he introduced a, a resource super profits tax. 
uh, on on oil and gas. Now that went from forty percent up to sixty five percent. This guy is no raving socialist. This is this is a Tory government mm. who's that's decided that um, these guys are skimming too much cash from a resource, and households are suffering. So, what they're doing there is they're subsidising the. Uh, very high cost of power. I think they've had something like 60% increase in their power costs. And guess what? Ours are going to be going up uh, in the next 20 months or so, 56%. So By nearly that much. Mm. Exactly, exactly. Mm. You know, like this is this is not radical. Some of this stuff might seem radical in normal times, but these are not normal times. And we uh, and it's uh, I, I'm I'm just surprised that you know market intervention of of some stronger type hasn't been considered at an earlier point. Well, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, I, I you know I, I get this is all very difficult, but it's been six months, right, that we've been watching the world go through this. Does it does it surprise you that the government is still scratching its head a bit about exactly what to do? Well, particularly when it's like like, but also when it's laid out. Like in the Rod Sims article. I mean, there it is. Mm-hmm. There's a mechanism to do it. Either rebut that or do it. And as you say, is the appetite there? The headlines are pretty clear. Gas companies yeah. are making giant profits. This is not because they've got difficulties in supply or something. It's because they can charge it and, and they're getting away with it. And then we're yeah. paying for it in the cost of electricity. It's just, it's. It, I think it's driving people insane. Oh, no, it's just me it's driving insane. Oh, I, I think there's a lot of people being um, made insane through through this. But, you know, if you were to tackle power prices, if you tackle gas prices, which have a big input in the into the cost of electricity, what would it do? It would lessen inflation almost instantaneously. And um, if you lessen inflation... That, that means that wage real wage growth will be faster because remember real wage growth is the is wage inflation minus the um, CPI yeah it's a good point. Okay, I'm really going at, uh, mad now you just said we can fix another whole problem with doing this <laughs> oh no, no <laughs> I was looking at the UK um, cap that they the freeze they've put on their power prices yes it's costing a, a bomb but it is bringing down inflation and it's similar to the fuel excise cut that we had for Six months. Um, it it it, uh, it feels like a long time ago when petrol prices were reduced, but that also had a downward impact on inflation generally. So it would have that benefit, you would think, uh, as well. Mm. I want to move beyond energy. But in though, Britain, other... David, don't don't forget in yeah. Britain, David, they're they're powering the country by burning prime ministers. So it's a different. <laughs> Whole different energy regime. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Let's go to some other questions we've got on the budget. Um, Joanna has one about uh, whether the government, well, we know the government is making it easier for old age pensioners to earn more before they start losing their pension. The opposition, uh, Peter Dutton, suggested this first and, and Labor picked up something similar. Um, but Joanna asks, surely it would make more sense to extend this to people on Job Seeker and sole parents benefit mm-hmm. as it would help them get uh, real part-time jobs and ease them into full employment. Right now they face a huge effective uh, tax rate uh, from losing their benefits once they take up some work. Look, it's an interesting idea and the principle, I suppose, is similar to what's being done for pensioners here. It costs the budget, of course, costs taxpayers if you're going to keep these payments going to people once they're in the workforce. But, you know, particularly with the unemployed, maybe it is a way of helping those who um, need that help to get a foot in the door, get some experience in the workforce uh, and also help with those labour shortages. Um, James, you first on that. What, what do you think of that idea? 
We've had a bit of discussion on that this week, and it's interesting the way it divides. There's those who take what your what Joanne was suggesting there and go, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Um, those that will say it's a good idea for pensioners, if you can do a couple more days' work, then that's great. You'll pay income tax on that. That's absolutely fine. I get surprised at, the, I suppose, the level and amount of people who go, this is totally unfair, you know, like they're getting a pension and then they can have a job. No, I won't be part of that. It doesn't make any sense. As soon as they've got a job, that should be it. They should be, you know, losing losing their pension. So there's a lot of reaction to it that, that, that's against it. They don't sort of, I don't think there's necessarily a lot of people who feel a lot of enthusiasm for it. Even though there's also then a lot of there's a, there's another group also and this was mainly among pensioners the way we were talking about it they start to they worry that it might end up being a little bit compulsory that you'll be expected uh, to do a couple of days work or that the the pension will be you know capped will be harder to get increases in pensions in 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 years to come so there there's reserve around it even though to my mind it seems like if you get a pension and you've earned that over your 30 40 years of work and that's what you've that's what you're entitled to if you then go and get a couple of days work and you pay tax on it what's the problem i you know who who are you who are you hurting here ian henschke from the seniors council we had on and he 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 suggests you know their their modeling and stuff suggests that once you do that it's virtually no cost to the government that the scheme pays for itself people start paying paying taxes back. And, you know, you could start to look at a similar thing for JobSeeker and the rest. I guess it's not too far from this when you, it's, it's 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 not too far a step until you start to get to universal wage, universal, universal pension, yeah, and yeah. that worries people then as well. Yeah, Andrew, and I guess this our whole idea, this whole concept of keeping payments going while, while you know, you take on more work, it makes more sense in a tight jobs market that we're currently in. But once unemployment starts to creep up, uh, are they are they taking the jobs of people who really need the work? Yeah, it's it's a complex one, isn't it? I'm I'm not got a firm view on this. I can see I can see great advantage with um, with pensioners uh, having greater access to do work, and I, I'm I'm sort of with James on that one. Like I don't see what the what the problem would be, uh, especially given the economic benefit of getting people back into work. I think as unemployment creeps up, then that that's when it becomes a bit more tricky, and unemployment is expected to to creep up, albeit to four point five percent, which um, you know, you know, over the past few decades is still very low level of unemployment. But that's about one hundred and fifty thousand people who will be unemployed if we do get to four and a half. Andrew, won't we still have those? We'll have that unemployment, but still shortages in aged care and workers and childcare workers, which are the very sort of areas where mm. you know pensioners in particular could be well served. Exactly, and that's that's a really good point. So you need to direct this maybe to those those particular areas and say, you know, you can keep your pension, but you've actually got to work in aged care, not not. Um you know, not not in, not in an office job. That sounds like indentured work. I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I would have thought once. You know, that's a bit hard, isn't it? Like you can either work, mm. like oh, I can't work in aged care because I've got arthritis or something. You know, I mean, it, it feels a little bit unfair. I'd, I'm just not sure who's penalised by the fact that somebody who's on a pension. At the moment, they can only work, you know, quite a, it's a tiny amount of hours and they lose it very rapidly. You know, it's a sort of double taxing where you're basically working for nothing. I just don't see who's being hurt by the fact that if someone goes and works two days a week or someone earns, you know, up to 50 or 60,000 a year or something over and above their pension, who's being hurt by that? And you've earned it. Got a question from Jeff here, which goes to, I guess, how the media treats <laughs> budgets. Jeff asks every newspaper and news site, 
gives winners and losers. <laughs> I, I Is like it any this wonder that disengaged voters reduce economic management to what's in it for me? How does the reporting of budgets affect the tone of economic debate? Would more balanced language allow more informed conversations? about reforms and structural balance aligned with social values. The funny thing is, Andrew, I think it was on Budget Day that we were actually having a conversation <laughs> yes. in the lockup or before the lockup about this very thing. We were. <laughs> now, it is a good question because it's slightly censorious tone in the question, but the fact is, uh, my dear man, <laughs> that's the most read. Like whether it's the newspaper or it's on the ABC News site, I mean, it's it's frightening. Uh, when you, you think, say you've say you've written a really great piece of analysis, um, uh, like an Andrew Proben piece, well, thoughtful, you know, balanced with a, with analysis. With a newspaper, for example, you would, you know, you, I would, I would yeah. do the the wrap, um, which would try and di- give you the full digest of what you needed to know. Uh, that would be in about seven hundred words, and then I'd do a try and do a punchy piece of analysis, and you'd be praying people be, would be reading it. But what did people do? They pick up the paper, they flip over to the um, back page, which is the winners and losers, because that is what people want to know. Well, yeah, the intern in the office knock out the, uh, the the winners and losers column, yeah. and that turned out. <laughs> but you most, know, the one of the, the ABC um, that that that's read by one one and a half million people. Like it is, wow. it's it's got huge numbers because that is, I'm afraid, what people want to read. Now, if you want to read the the um, more into the the budget, God, go go for it. I mean, budget.gov.au for a start, or you can turn to all of the newspapers and the columns and so on. There's a lot of debate around budgets, and I think, um, you know, I think we we have to, as a as an industry, though, we have to try and service as many people as possible mm. and tell you what you what you need to know. Was it yeah. um, was it David who asked this question, David? Jeff, this is Jeff's Jeff, question. Jeff, 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 can I just suggest and to any others when you put questions into a panel, which in particular is going to comprise members of the media, any criticism of the media will be immediately rejected quite strongly uh, with a lot of reasoning and it won't be our fault at all. So, you know, expecting think- that we might go, gee, you're right, we really shouldn't find <laughs> things like that anymore. No. <laughs> Is, is, does Jeff have a point? I will, I will give this. Does Jeff have a point here? I suppose in suggesting that we do need to uh, think, you know, instead of the "what's in it for me," the individual focus uh, to more of the, um, you know, the, the, the national uh, focus of what's mm. in it for the nation, what's going to be better for uh, for Australia as a whole. I mean, I don't know. Is that a reality? Well, well, I had to think about it from the "what's in it for me" aspect, and I mean, I feel like the entire course of my life everything has pushed me to only think of what's in it in it for me. You know, like we, I've had to think about, um, you know, whether it's keeping my job or it's uh, health insurance and, 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 and making sure I've got health care, making sure that I've, I'm going to be paying for my housing, I'm going to be paying for educating my children, um, et cetera, et cetera, having money for retirement for when I mm-hmm. can't work and the rest of it. So that's pretty much the way in which we've been pushed over the last 20 or 30 years to make sure that you're really looking after yourself. So it's pretty much going to be anybody's first reaction to look at this and go, what's in it for me? And after that, we might go, yes, I think this represents the national interest in terms of defence and uh, how we see ourselves in the world. Like that's going to be a secondary consideration after you've taken a look at what it means for health, education, your wages, super, etc. We all have a degree of uh, selfishness, I suppose, when it comes to our own bottom line, no doubt about that. Look, we've got a final question here from Danielle, uh, which is a good one as well. Danielle asks, uh, what I don't understand about the stage three tax cuts is my income has been stagnant for years. Apparently, wage growth in Australia is negligible. So why are the stage three tax cuts justified 
uh, by the concept of bracket creep. And look, Danielle is right that one of the big arguments we hear from those pushing for these stage three tax cuts to continue is that all this bracket creep needs to be returned. But, you know, Danielle is also right to say wages have been stagnant for years. The, the answer here is, well, wages have been creeping up, uh, but not as much as inflation. So not in real terms or barely in real terms over recent years and not at all right now. But even when wage growth doesn't keep up with inflation, it still pushes people into higher tax brackets. Those tax brackets aren't moving. They're not indexed. They're not going up with inflation. But your wage is, that's bracket creep. So, Andrew, it, it may not be a lot of bracket creep, but there has been bracket creep since some of these tax rates were uh, were changed. Look, there has been, and, and it's because of bracket creep that people, when they're really, really thinking about it, say aren't saying now abolish stage three. They're saying amend it because what stage three tax cuts do would basically give benefit to everyone over 45000 but it, it gives a lot of money to people at the top end, about $9,500 in terms of a, a tax cut for those over over 200 plus. Now, if you are looking at the tax brackets here, and I'm just looking at them now, so uh, the thirty-two and a half cent uh, bracket starts at uh, at forty-five. That would go down to forty, sorry, to to thirty percent, and then the thirty-seven cent bracket, which starts at one twenty, would disappear, and that's between one twenty and one eighty. So you can see the people um, there'd be people who are both at, at, on very modest incomes. And then, um, then better off uh, people who are better off would 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 be benefiting on those margins as they're pushed uh, ever higher um, through even modest wage rises. So bracket creep is an issue, uh, and it would be tackled to some degree by stage three. But um, stage three is a, is quite a complicated um, uh, uh, notion, both politically and also when it comes to those base numbers. It, it, it always struck me with that, that, you know, the sort of $500 you're going to get if you're on 50000 is kind of like, well, that's great. That's grocery bills. That's about a half of one quarter of energy bills at the moment. But the $9,000 you get if you're at 200000 well, that's about a quarter of your school fees, uh, your private school fees for the year. It's a business class trip to, to, to ski Japan. You know, it's kind of reasonable dough uh, at that sort mm. of level that will will do something. So it does... It's 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 both a large amount and, and significant enough that you you'll go oh great nine grand that's might, might that's, even, that's terrific it might even be enough to help pay those power bills uh, at the end of the <laughs> yeah. next well it's a power bill for somebody on fifty thousand and they're not getting it <laughs> yeah. you know so exactly exactly look on that note we'll uh, wrap it up Andrew James thank you both very much for answering all those questions today pleasure uh, have, we've had fun haven't we James look excellent Andrew I, I don't know why we're uh, we, you know I, I think every I'll do Fridays on the seven o'clock news and do the political commentary because my expertise is so obvious <laughs> it's pretty impressive it's pretty <laughs> impressive all right thanks to uh, all of you for sending in those questions thanks to our producers matt bevan sam dunn and robin powell as well keep sending the questions you can do that via the abc listen app or send an email to back to you podcast at abc.net.au we'll be back in your feed next friday see you then You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.